How to get the family you've always wanted. Here you go. This is like a how-to sermon? Not necessarily. But if we're going to talk about family, we need to know what we're aiming at. <clears throat> What's the target so you know if you've made it or not? Now, for any of you who are sitting here and going, look, I'm, I'm single or single again, and you're going, I don't, I don't want to sit through a family thing. Trust me, this one will be different. In that, all of us come from family. All of us are part of some family. No one just mysteriously appears on this planet alone, by yourself. If you think you did, then we probably should recommend you to a therapist to help you understand that you know, you're probably not an alien life form who just appeared on this planet alone someplace. You're part of family. If nothing else, since you're here at church, you're part of the family of God. So since we're a part of family, let's ask some diagnostic questions about families. What kind of family do I really want? It's a good question. I'm fascinated by the responses because I've, I've asked hundreds and hundreds of people this question. What kind of family do you want? The most common response is, I want a really good family. Come on, that's no answer. No one ever says, I want a bad family. Like, you know, like the one that embarrasses and humiliates you all the time. That, yeah, that's my goal. That's what I'm shooting for. Now, what kind of family do you want? Be more specific. You've got to have something to shoot for. What's it going to look like? What kind of families have I seen? Because like it or not, we tend to replicate what we've seen. How many of us have said, one thing, I'm never going to do what my father did or what my mother did. And then you find yourself one day waking up and going, Oh dear God, I just said what they said. I said I would never do that. And I just said that same thing to my children. And your children then wash your mouth out with soap. That's how that works. What kind of people are we? This is an important question because you really can't be something you're not. Like for example, we have people in this room today who are really good high structure people. Now, if you're high structure and that works for you, like, thank God, but please don't impose that on anyone else. Because the rest of us who are not high structure people, we might appreciate what you do from a distance, but don't give us pointers. Please don't give us pointers. When Diane and I were new to faith, the people who discipled us were high structure people. And they said, look, you, you need to be up this early on Sunday morning so you get here by this time and do this and do this and do this. And I'm going, I'm lucky if I get there with my pants on. <laughs> Who cares if the children have shoes on? Like, that's an option. Even if it's below freezing, they, they may or may not have shoes on. Like, look, God works with us, the kind of people we are. Don't make us what you are. It doesn't work. Now, they weren't convinced of that. We needed to be more like them. And yeah, right. So what kind of people are we? What kind of models might work best for us? We'll look at a couple different models and you can take a look at. Then a, then a really good question. If we haven't reached our dream or our goal, what do we do with the leftover junk? Re leftover rubbish, because there's always rubbish left. It's never perfect or ideal. If yours is, we'll just give you a little more time. Because throughout your lifetime, it's never going to be perfect. So what do you do with the leftover stuff you don't like? And then where do we start? I want to give you a model as we start this morning that most of you have never seen before. If we could have the chart, 
This is called the covenant model of family. Most of us are used to what's called the authority model. Authority model is used around the world. It's used in the church. Essentially what we've done is taken what has been a cultural model used throughout Europe, um, both Canada and the U.S., much of South America, and large portions of Asia, where authority model, there's someone in charge, usually male-dominated, and uh, we've baptized that, called that Christian, and spread that widely. I'm not here to challenge that today. I'm just here to say there's another model, a good one, and probably equally true to Scripture. And the covenant model can be summarized by simply saying we represent God to each other. So let's take a look at this model. starts at the top with a degree of commitment. There's this initial covenant. We've talked about covenants before in the last couple of weeks. In a covenant, you remember, there's always a stronger party and a weaker party. Now, we've made assumptions that that's often male-oriented in many places in the world. But not necessarily true. Let me just give you the other side of this. When a child is born, a parent has to take care of every need. The parent is clearly the stronger member in this covenant. But as you get older, there often comes a time when your children have to take care of you. There's a, a flip, that you're no longer the stronger party. The children have become that. Which is hard in families when the older adults will not give up control. Some of you have experienced that. It's a challenge to families. Starts with this initial covenant and a degree of commitment. Around the world, we make these commitments and covenants together in things called marriage ceremonies and say, till death do us part. And then in various cultures, between 30 to 60% of people go, yeah, I, I, re I really didn't mean that. Uh, it, I've changed my mind for some reason. But there is this initial covenant and commitment together. As you move around the circle, there's a degree of grace that's offered. Degree of grace is an interesting one to me. Because in families, if you've got four or more people in your family, there's always somebody who needs a little extra grace. Very seldom is everybody doing well all at the same time. If you have that today, like just drop your knees and thank God. Because it may not be true long term. We don't know that. We'll see. Also in families of four or more, there's almost always someone who needs extra grace regularly. They're called extra grace required people. Now, what's funny is the family, if they were to vote on it, would almost unanimously always elect the same person, and it's always a surprise to that person. What, you think I'm the extra grace required person? And the rest of the family goes, duh. Like, come on, we put it to a vote, it's unanimous. You didn't know this? Does it say moron on your forehead? Come on, how could you miss that one? But you offer that in families because you're family. You offer extra grace. It's how families work. There's also a degree of empowering. Empowering is that sense of offering people strength and courage and hope to move to the next level. And typically in a family, there will be somebody who needs that extra empowerment, whether it's confidence or courage or grace or hope. Our youngest son had the hardest time of our four children growing up. He needed extra grace and empowering. Um, we had enough challenges with him that uh, the principal's office was uh, at the high school was on speed dial. It, it, it wasn't that funny for us. But they called us one day and said, we, we, need, uh, we need you to come in, Mr. and Mrs. Sanders. Uh, we've had career day, 
and your son has declared that he wants to be dictator of the universe. And uh, they said, normally we would take that as a joke, but with your son, we think it's potentially dangerous. <laughs> okay, fine, we're, we're headed in. And uh, you know, you're thinking, as, as, as the parents, how do you respond to that? And I know how lots of parents respond. You sit the kid down and you go, what, are you stupid? And you smack him upside the head and go, come on. Get your act together. This isn't funny. It's, it's embarrassing. Come on. But I said to him, if you're going to be dictator of the universe, that means you've got to be a leader. Now, people become dictators in one of four ways. I never read this. I just made it up on the spot. And I said, you've got to be a person of influence and people have to trust you. So if you're going to be a dictator, you at least got to be good for the people. He goes, I never thought of that. I said, so if you're going to be this, you've got to read some stuff. So the first book I gave him was Leadership Secrets of Attila the Hun. <laughs> and then he really took this on and he decided to read the best literature of dictators around the world. He read Mao's Red Book. I mean, he, he read the original material. Came back in six months and he declared to our family he was no longer going to become dictator of the universe. And I said, tell me why. And he said, I discovered I wouldn't be kind enough to the people. I wouldn't be a good dictator. I said, see, you've learned something about yourself. There's also this degree of intimacy, that sense of closeness. Intimacy is a sense of being understood and valued and appreciated simply for who you are. When done in the context of family, it does empower people to go to the next level. And then you have what's called the mature covenant. I can summarize this whole model in one phrase. Families represent God. I'll be speaking this morning from 1 Peter. 1 Peter gives us some background passages to take a look at. The background of what we're going to lead up to in chapter 3 begins by putting several pieces together to lead us up to chapter 3. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, he simply says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled and set your hope fully on the grace that's given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. He said, But he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all that you do. For it's written, Be holy because I am holy. This is the foundation that we represent God. He's a God of holiness. We're to represent him accordingly. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, Peter says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wondrous light. He says in verse 13 now, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority that's instituted among men, whether kings, supreme authorities, or governors, and he says in verses 16 and 17, as he wraps up this part of the passage, he said, now live as those who are free. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. That phrase will keep coming up. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. If we pull this together... There's uh, three things that have been said here. Number one, you represent God. Number two, we're to have mutual submission one to another. Submit yourselves to one another. And number three, show respect one to another. He now gives three applications of this. In chapter 2, verse 18, he said, Slaves, this is what it looks like for you. 
Slaves, you're to submit to your masters, uses the word submission, with all respect. Odd teaching, it seems like he should have addressed the masters and said, free your slaves. He didn't. He addressed the slaves and said, submit to your masters and show respect to them. The second application is to wives. Wives, this is how you do this. And he does that in the first six verses of chapter 3. And then in verse 7, he says, Husbands, this is what it looks like for you. Three very specific applications. So let's pull together what family summary looks like. In families, you represent God to each other. Family is not so much about role or authority, but family is about how you set the tone in your home. Now, I want to address this for just a moment. Because I started to speak to men on this topic almost 20 years ago said, men, nobody's ever taught us how to do this. Most men, various places in the world, most men leave the emotional tone of the home up to the woman. But, but it's our job. It really is our job. Let me show you. I can show you homes, endless numbers of homes, many represented here, where you've got that sort of woman in the home who is kind, caring, listening, loving, sort of what everybody hopes for. She is that. You may or may not have that kind of home, depending on what he is like when he comes home. Everything can be going well. He comes home angry. He comes home tired and agitated. He comes home having too much to drink. He comes home that somebody cut him off on the way home, and he's mad. The whole tone of the home changes depending on what he walks in like and the mood he's in. On the other hand, you show me a home where the man really takes on representing God. And the woman of the home can be off the charts in a number of ways. And you can still have quite a good home. Then we set the tone in the home. You don't like the tone in your home? Don't blame anybody else. It's us. Nobody's ever taught us how to do that. We'll get there in the next 20 minutes. I promise. We represent God. It's that simple. We represent God. Now, my favorite verse in this whole passage is chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6 says, Now Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Master. Let's just pause for a moment of silence, shall we? Let's repeat that verse together. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Master. I love that verse. I love that one. There's just one problem. The passage doesn't end in verse 6. It goes to verse 7. I know this. I read ahead. There's a verse 7 that comes. And guys, it's not nearly as kind to us. We'd rather just stick in verse 6. Verse 7 says, now husbands, men. Now what I want to do is take this part of the passage, and although it's addressed specifically to men, the principles here of how we represent God are so clear. Look at verse 7 for just a moment. It says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way and treat them with respect. There's the last line of that verse says, so that your prayers won't be hindered. Wow. I've had the opportunity to speak in churches in just about 50 countries. 
this verse explains much of what I've seen around the world. A less effective church than God dreams it of being because of this. Men who demand, men who tell, men who expect, men who blame other people, but not men who live with their families in an understanding way and treat them with respect. Because when you do that, God answers your prayers. That's how we're to treat each other. Offer understanding. Offer understanding. We started a long time ago a thing we called family council. I'd read about it someplace and I thought, we're going to adopt this for our own family and adapt it just a little bit to suit us. Family councils were interesting. You didn't have to do them all the time, but you, you always had it there. Everybody knew what a family council was, and you could declare them if you needed to. It was great as the kids were growing up. It's also great now that they're older, because it's a way to work out and sort out issues. What we wanted to do was not have a battleground over an evening meal. And so we just said, whenever somebody had a problem, we just said, look, we're going to have family council on the weekend. Bring it up then. And that way you could keep home and family meals in the evening pretty calm. One time we had to declare a family meeting because the family we wanted the ideal and what we had were about this far apart. And so we declared a family council and we had to set things straight because it was not going well at all. Everybody knew that. I think everybody else thought it was somebody else, but we had to have one. Uh, I prayed about this and prepared for it. I, I knew what was going on. I'm the dad. I know. I, I do this. I, I, this is, like, I, I, I talk about this stuff. I teach this stuff. I knew what was wrong. And we just had to go through the process so I got to tell everybody what their issues were. <laughs> so we went into the family council, and you have a nice meal together, and then you go around and just do some affirmation. Our youngest daughter, who's with us this week, um, she loved it because she, she was the affirmation junkie. She just got her opportunity to tell everybody how much she loved them and how much family meant to them, and we had finally had to cut her off and go, good, we, we, know, we know you like this a lot, let's work with the other stuff too. And so we got the other stuff, and I said, who wants to be first? And, and one of the kids said, Dad, you're, you're always angry. Yeah, like that's the issue in our family. Come on, that is not the issue here, folks, trust me. And the second child spoke and barely looked up and said, yeah, yeah Dad, uh, I, I think that's it, you're... You're really angry. I'm going, what? You didn't have one of your own, so power suggestion? You took theirs? What? So what, you all had a meeting in advance, and rather than taking responsibility, you blamed me? Is that what's going on here? So is everybody going to go around and blame me? Very secure mail, you know. <laughs> and they said, well, that's kind of the issue. We're all sort of tense and messing up because we're scared of you. I said, you, you guys, you got to help me here, because I am the nicest guy I know. <laughs> I said, look, I, I, don't, I don't hit. I don't hit. I don't yell. I barely raise my voice. How, how am I the issue here? And one of them said, yeah, but it's the look. And I said, what look? And he said, it's that look. That look right there, Dad. It scares us. I remember sitting back, and I said to them, You've got to help me understand something. Because I'm serious. In my mind, I'm the nicest guy I know. And if I'm this far off, 
we're in trouble. So help me understand. It was St. Francis who said, Seek not to be understood, but to understand. When you represent God, you just offer that kind of understanding to each other. But you see, some of us here have to be right. We're what we call right fighters. You would rather be right than be in a right relationship. And you have to win, and everybody knows that. And so people let you win. Because you have to be right. And so they just go. And you offer no understanding. And you so don't represent God well at all. I'd finished preaching in a church in uh, New England, northeastern United States. It's one of those beautiful old New England buildings, tall ceilings, big steeple, floor-to-ceiling mirror, uh, mirrors, floor-to-ceiling windows, letting light in, white painted pews, beautiful. And uh, they, they were, a, they were a, a bit of a stuffy bunch, and I had a ponytail time. It was sort of my job to annoy them a little bit. Uh, at least that's what I thought was my job. But uh, it was fun preaching there because I was just so different than them. And on the way out, one of the guys stopped and he said to me, Martin, I just want to challenge you. Now, it's always fun as the speaker or the preacher when somebody wants to challenge you afterwards. Ask questions, clarify anything. It, it's fun. But when somebody wants to challenge you, I always love these because I'm going, I, I, wonder, I wonder their approach. I wonder how they're going to do this. So he said to me, I just want to challenge you. I said, go ahead. Give me your best shot. And he said, you're really good on the soft sides of God. But, but you're not very good at judgment. I said to him, was there any judgment in the passage this morning? He said, well, no. I said, well, why would I add judgment if there's no judgment in the text? He goes, yeah, but you avoid those hard passages. I said to him, can I, can I ask you a couple questions? I said, uh, you like judgment, don't you? He said, well, I think it has its place and you need to set things straight regularly. I, said, I, I bet you do. I said, can I ask a couple more questions? I said, you, you have children? He said, three. And I said, they're, they're probably mostly grown now. He said, yep, they're all out of the home. So just a couple more questions. Do your children love God? He put his head down a bit. He said, we're, we're going through kind of a hard time as a family. I said, I bet you are. So one more question. Do your children love you? And his head went way down. And he said, it's been really hard lately. I thought, do I be pastoral here? Or do I try to help the guy? So I went the direct approach. I took my two fingers and I jammed them in his chest a couple times. I said, don't you challenge anybody till you learn to represent God better. He pushed my hands away and he left without thanking me. <laughs> I didn't see him for quite a while. In three weeks, I stopped his wife as she was leaving and I said, haven't seen John lately. She goes, yeah, you're not his favorite person right now. But I, I would assume not. In three more weeks, she stopped, though. She stopped. And she said, Martin, something's happening. She said, we've been married, it's official, 31 years. She said, until the last month, I've never seen my husband cry. He's cried more in the last month than in the 30 
more than 30 years I've known him. She, he has written letters to all three children. They've all called me and asked if Dad has something terminal. <laughs> and then she took, took both of my hands in hers and she said, This afternoon at 5 p.m., we're meeting together as a family for the first time in seven and a half years. Pray for us. He was finally, finally starting to get how to represent God. Now, for any of you here who are parents and your kids are teenagers or, or adults, how often do they come to you and say, Mom, Dad, will you please give me all of your opinions about my life? How often does that happen? Yeah, never. Now, if they ever ask that, many of you have plenty to say. But you see, they want your understanding, not your opinions. Please. Please. The second part of this passage, although the word's not used, it's a clear implication and application of how this works out. The second way we represent God is we simply listen. If you ask people about their relationship with God, that's what they talk about. It's interesting as you read um, teenage literature. The number one complaint of teenagers towards their parents is, my parents don't listen to me. And parents go, well, of course not. You don't know what you're talking about. That, that's a no-brainer. It's also interesting in the work I do. That the number one complaint of pastors' wives towards their male pastor husbands is he doesn't listen. Come on, buddy, can't you get this right? No, because the job of the pastor is to solve everybody else's issues. You're the answer person. But what families want is someone who listens. A number of years ago, I was doing a series on all of the one another passages in Scripture. And I got to the one about showing honor one to another. I thought, this is a hard one. Not for women, because we, we have days to actually celebrate women, celebrate Mother's Day. And it's the time when everybody says all those great things to their mom, and we celebrate and honor women and moms especially. But we don't do the same kinds of things for, for men. And it's hard. How do you show honor to men? So I decided I was going to put together just a simple several-question survey. I was going to interview 50 men. From uh, highly professional men um, and executives uh, to uh, working class blokes. I was going to talk men on the street. I was going to talk to some young men. I also decided I was going to go into the prison and save three or four interviews for men in prison. I was, I was really intrigued by what I discovered. I asked for 10-minute appointments. And what I discovered was 43 out of the 50 men, 86% of men, their number one or number two response when asked, how does someone show honor or respect to you? They said, when someone listens to me. Now, it was supposed to be 10-minute appointments, but I had appointments going well over two hours. I remember meeting with a, a, a president of a bank, a ninth floor, beautiful office, big complex, and I, I started to leave after 15 minutes. He goes, no, i got time to stay. Well, I had other appointments. Two hours and 15 minutes later, I finally had to say to him, I, I really do have to go. So many of the men said, I've not enjoyed a conversation like this my whole lifetime. I got passionate responses from men. 
Men who said, do you have any idea how hard it is to get anyone to listen to you? And I still wanted to go, I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention, right? What did you say? This didn't seem appropriate. But I had guys who said, no one asks about me, ever. I get work. I'm the boss. Nobody comes to me and asks about me. My job is to fix everybody else's issues. Nobody cares about me. I go home. I met at the door. Will you do this? Will you take care of this? Dad, will you run me here? Dad, got money for this. Why are you late? You're always late. It's not glad I'm home. It's something's wrong. And guys have said, no, no one ever. No one ever listens to me. There's no honor given to me. power of listening. Why it empowers people. And it's one of the ways we can represent God so well. Final one comes in verse 8. Now remember the three applications earlier? If we're going to do mutual submission, respect for one another. He said, this is what it looks like for slaves, this is what it looks like for wives, this is what it looks like for husbands. Now in verse 8, finally, all of you the rest of you who don't fit in any of those categories, this is for you. Live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but rather with a blessing. For you are called for this very purpose, that you might inherit the blessing. This is how it works, folks. You receive this, all this great stuff from God. Your job is then to pass it on. To represent Him and simply pass it on. Now, in Scripture, there are five characteristics of the blessing. I wrote this book a couple years ago called How to Get the Family You've Always Wanted. There's a chapter in here about passing on the blessing. When I wrote it first, I, I wrote it, I think, more than a decade ago. just wrote it as a booklet, about 15 pages. And uh, I think we distributed well over 100,000 of those. But I sent one to my oldest daughter, who was in uni at the time. And uh, I said, Aim, read it and get back to me. I never heard from her. Which was, you know, sort of wondered about that. Like, your daughter won't read your stuff and talk to you. What's going on here? So it was about almost three months later, I said to her, Aim, did you read it? She goes, yeah. So well, you didn't say anything. She just paused and she had this look on her face and I said, you read it and thought, why did he bother writing this? This is how life is, right? She goes, well, yeah, that's what I thought. I said, think of your friends. How many of them got this? She went, oh. I said, you grew up with it. You're used to it. The vast majority of people out there don't get this. She goes, you're, you're right. I was thinking, doesn't everybody know this? Like, why do you take time to write this thing? Everybody knows this. This is everybody's life, isn't it? I said, no, it's mostly yours and some, a few other people. This is what it looks like. The characteristics of a blessing in Scripture are meaningful touch. Appropriate touch. Very often you placed hands on someone. A spoken word. You look them in the eye and you speak words directly to them. High value is attached to the person that you're blessing. You matter to me. You matter to God. You are important. You matter as a person. A special future is pictured. Based on who you are, the gifts you have, the kind of person you are, I think this is a way that you can have a really significant life. 
or a way that God can really use you. And then the final one is that you actively commit to stand behind that. You're there with them and for them. That's a blessing in Scripture. Now, before we go to the next slide, I want you to work with me for a minute. It's been a little odd for me speaking here because coming from New York, which is, you know, the whole world sort of lives there. It's very culturally diverse. I never speak to this many white people all in one place. You kind of scare me. Um, Because I'm used to, like in African-American churches, they talk back to you. Like, you've got to really stay focused. They almost sound like hecklers. They talk to you so much. So I I want you to sort of set aside your your sort of laid-back Western Aussie thing. And and, and uh, get a little extra pigmentation in your skin. Get a little more lift in you and uh, jump a little higher. And, uh, and get your rhythm down a bit better. And talk to me for just a minute. I need you to talk back to me. If we're talking about representing God, give me those ways that you so appreciate or value God. God is or does what that you so love about Him? He is or does what? What's that? He's accepting. What else? Absolutely. Forgiving. Gives you strength. We've already covered he listens. What's that? Absolutely. It's grace. He just keeps going for you again and again and again. Yes. He forgets the right stuff. Unconditional. Let's have the slide. You have just described what your family wants from you. God cares, loves, forgives, listens, responds, gives you grace and hope, does not give up on you, and He's always there. Folks, it's exactly what your family wants from you. And you can do that. Come on, you can do that. It's what He wants from you. It's what they want from you, and it's what he gives to you. Now pass it on. Let's go to our final slide. The power of the blessing in families. Let's do an experiment. Let's take two children, age six. You can find them on any playground around any school. Take one six-year-old and have somebody in their life, family member or somebody else in their life, Every week for 10 years, have somebody look at them, smile at them, put their hand on their head or their shoulder, look them directly in the eye, say their name in a kind tone, and the word bless in the same sentence. Now take another six-year-old. They're all over out there. Take that six-year-old have somebody in their life look at them like they don't matter as a human. And an adult with an angry look, who's much larger than them, look at that kid with disgust and say their name in a mean tone and use the word damn in the same sentence. You track those kids for ten years and see what you get. You get a completely different person, I promise. And it's almost that simple. It's almost that simple. Folks, we have huge power 
We have huge power to change the destinies of families. We have power to change how your family name is remembered by the words we speak to one another. Youth and young adults, what they need to move to the next level is not a criticism of where they are, but empowerment of the next level. The blessing of the best of who they can be, and we can pass it on. The power of this came home to me. I was a graduate student. I had just started a new job in Chicago, and the only job I could get was stocking shelves in an all-night grocery store, midnight to 8.30. It's interesting to see who shops in an all-night grocery store. Unusual people come in in the middle of the night. It's also interesting to see who works there. The five of us on the night crew, where two of us were grad students, and it was just the best way to uh, work during the night and study during the day. The three other guys were all coming out of rehab, drug or alcohol. The night crew chief was your classic 27-year-old party animal. He'd been through rehab twice. He vowed he would not go back into rehab again. So he had to have a highly structured life, and working all night was one way to tell his friends, look, I can't go out with you tonight. I have to go home and sleep because I've got to be at work by midnight. We were an interesting bunch together. My job as the newest guy on the team was in the mornings gather all the cardboard from all the boxes that had all the big stuff in and take it in the back and bundle it up and take it out back so it could be recycled. Um, our machine was old, didn't work well. I was back there one morning wrestling with that thing. It just wouldn't work right. I was back there way too long. Finally, the crew chief came back. He said, hey, college boy, what, can't you figure this high-tech machine out? I said, ah, it's just not working today. He came over, he looked at it, he pushed one button, kicked it, pushed it again, and it worked perfectly. Apparently, I didn't kick it strategically enough. I was tired, I was frustrated, and I just looked up at him, and I raised my hand, and I said, bless you, my son. And he turned and looked at me and just stared, like for an uncomfortably long time, just stared at me. I'm thinking, I, I don't know what I did. As I looked at him, I, I noticed tears starting to come down his cheek. I'm going, this is awkward. And he looked at me and he said, no one's ever blessed me before. And at that point, it was too late to go, it's just kidding. I mean, and I didn't, I didn't want to say thank you, I just said, bless you. And he turned and he walked away and he muttered to himself. He said, I've been blessed by a guy who's going to be a priest. Now, I hated to tell him I was married and had three little kids. Now, over the next two weeks, it was fascinating. Because he brought in his two sisters and his mother to meet the man who had blessed him. Mom, who was barely five feet tall, I had to bend way over. She hugged me, kissed me on both cheeks, hugged me again, thanking me over and over again for blessing her son. It had changed his life. Really? He brought in his 85-year-old grandmother on a walker. I had to bend way down. Barely spoke English. She kissed me on both cheeks numerous times and thanked me endlessly for blessing her grandson. It had changed his life. And I thought, I'm 25 years old. 
If an offhanded comment can matter this much to somebody, imagine, imagine. Put a clear look, a meaningful touch, a direct word spoken to someone, the power of that in their life. Folks, you can do this. You can do this. And our families and our church and our communities will be different because of it. Pray with me, please. Father, all that great stuff that we can get from you, will you show us how and give us the confidence to pass it on? Just pass it on. We want to be those kind of people who pass on the blessing of Almighty God. Show us how. As we sing this final song, three questions. The first one is simply, is there any sin to leave at the foot of the cross? Come on, in a group this size, some of you have really messed up. Be honest. Some of the great things about God. He's willing to forgive and give you a new start. If you were a terrible kid, not a much better parent, you've got a really good chance to be an amazing grandparent. Or even better yet, a really, really good great-grandparent. And influence your family that way. The second group is there might be just some emotional rubbish to leave behind. You got the opposite of the blessing. You got the curse. Somebody looked at you like you didn't matter and said dreadful things to you. It's a good day to renounce those and leave them behind today. There's a third group here. And that's those of you who want and need that blessing spoken over you today. Either as a model or you never got it before. There's going to be three or four teams of us at the front. If you'd like to have somebody pray that blessing into your life, it's a great day to get that blessing. Let's stand together and respond to God today.